0: Please take your Bibles and turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. begin reading in verse 13, and we'll read down to verse 18. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. We'll be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Let's pray together. Father, we ask your blessing on our time as we study the scriptures, that our hearts would be shaped by what we encounter here, that we would hear it not as the words of man, but truly what it is, is your word to us. So help us to set aside distractions in this time and to let you and your word be our focus so that we walk out of this place with a greater love for you, desiring to look more like you in the way that we live. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, this morning is really uh, part two of what we began last week when we started working through this particular passage of verses 13 to 18. And this, what we want to do this morning is, is really finish our study in, in, these, uh, in these verses. As we noted last week, this is one of the most encouraging passages of Scripture found in, uh, in, in really, that the stands at the, at the center of the Christian's hope in the face of death, right? It's, it's hard to find a more... Uh, exhortive or, or encouraging passage in the face of death than what we read in these words, that we don't sorrow as those who have no hope, uh, but rather, rather if we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, then we have this hope of, of seeing him and our loved ones who have passed uh, again. It's interesting when the Bible talks about death, and when it uh, approaches death, it does so in a distinctly different way than, than the world addresses death, right? The world addresses death and, and, and looks at it in terms of, of despair and hopelessness. But the words of Scripture, they're, they're different. Uh, they, they describe death in, 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 in more, more precious ways, right? So let me just give you a number of passages of Scripture that, that describe death in a, in, in, from the Christian perspective. Psalm 116 verse 15 says, this "Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints." Luke 16 verse 22, if, if this is not a parable and an actual account, which is a debated point, but Luke 16:22 says, "The poor man died and was carried by angels to Abraham's side." Luke 23 verse 43. This is the encounter where Jesus is on the cross, and Jesus says to the thief on the cross, today you will be with me in paradise. John fourteen two that we just read speaks of Jesus preparing many rooms uh, as, a, as a place for those who pass. 2 Corinthians 5, 8 says we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. Philippians 1.21, to die is gain. Philippians 1.23, my desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is, Paul says, far better. And a passage we're reading this morning, 1 Thessalonians 4.13, we won't, don't want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep. So, so death from the Christian perspective is, is, is entirely different than the world's perspective. Right, just, take that, just take one of the words there, uh, the word that we, we read in Second Corinthians, the word home. Right, the word home conjures up certain feelings and emotions uh, in your mind, does it not? Right, it's, if you just think about the popular songs that talk about home. Right? You remember the song, I'll Be Home for Christmas. Right? It speaks of comfort and rest, a place where there's snow and mistletoe, like if you're into into that kind of thing, right? You remember the words of the great theologian John Denver, right? Country roads, take me home. But then he says what? To the place where I belong, right? That, that's, what, that's what home is. It's, it's the implication that there are other places where we don't belong, but home is the place of, of rest where we, where we truly belong. Like, like Peter talks about Christians on this earth as being exiles, pilgrims, sojourners in this life, but, but our real home is when we are with Christ in his presence. And so that's the way the scriptures articulate death for the, for the believer. So far from death being the end, or us going out of existence, or even a, a, a time of despair for the believer, no, quite literally, it is better to be dead than it is to be alive. Because We will be with Christ. Now, it's that idea that we're addressing here in this passage. And and as we would expect, if we're picking up where we left off, it's going to be necessary for us to do a little bit of review to set the table for for where we're headed headed this morning. Right? So, uh, the first thing we saw last week is that believers have hope in the face of death, which changes the nature of their grief. Okay? We saw this in verse 13 where Paul writes, we don't want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as those who do not have, or who, who have no hope. Right now, the particular struggle that the Thessalonians were, were facing is that as they were waiting and anticipating the coming of the Lord, thinking that it was going to be at any moment, some of their fellow believers had, <coughs> excuse me, some of their fellow believers had, had passed away Before the glorious return of the Lord. Now, they they don't seem to be concerned about the spiritual condition of their fellow believers who who passed away. They they don't seem to be questioning whether they're going to be in heaven or hell, but it seems that they're they're thinking that they've somehow missed out or they're going to miss out on the glorious return of the Lord. Or or one author writes it in these words that they're concerned that there would be an irreparable disadvantage to those who had passed away. Before Christ had returned. And so uh, Paul writes to, to encourage them and to give them this hope and to tell them that when Christ returns to the clouds, he's going to be bringing the dead in Christ with him. So they're going to be present with him, right? So he says in verse 14, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. And so then he gives this hope in verse 17 that then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them, that is with Christ and the, the saints in Christ who have passed, in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so, he says, here's our hope, so we will always be with the Lord. We see then that Paul writes this information to give them hope in the face of death. Right? Paul says, I'm writing so that you're not uninformed so that you don't go on grieving as those who have no hope. And the teaching of this passage really is, it, it changes everything for the believer in the face of death. Right? It changes the way we think about, the, about death when we have loved ones that, that pass away. Do, do, we, do we still grieve? Absolutely. But do we grieve as those who have no hope? Absolutely not. We grieve with a, a hope-filled hope filled confidence that, that, that we have, been, have this assurance that, that Christ will return for us, that there will be a reuniting with our loved ones who have passed away, who are in Christ. It's no coincidence that many of the hymns that are written surrounding the context of death and, and hardship often focus on the, the glorious return of the Lord. All right, so let me give us a couple of examples, right? So take, for example, the hymn, It Is Well With My Soul. It's written by Horatio Spafford. Spafford had, had knew, knew death and encountered death very intimately. He, he lost his son to scarlet fever. Then two years after that, his wife and four daughters were in an accident crossing the Atlantic by boat, where all four of his daughters were killed. So age 11, age 9, age 5... And two years old, right? So in the midst of it, he 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 pens these words: "When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well with my soul." But the last verse, he turns his expectations to glory and says this: "And Lord, haste the day, when my faith shall be sight, the clouds be rolled back as a scroll, the trump shall resound." And the Lord shall descend, and especially then, it will be well with his soul. Right? Another hymn that, that, that articulates this, this longing for Christ's return in the midst of, of hardship and death is the hymn, Be Still, My Soul. Right? Clearly written from a moment of pain, the first two verses remind us and, and establish our confidence in the sovereignty of God. So be still, my soul. The Lord is on your side. Bear patiently the cross of grief or pain. Leave to your God to order and provide. In every change he faithful will remain. Be still, my soul, your best, your heavenly friend, through thorny ways leads to a joyful end. But then the final verse turns our attention to the blessed hope of, of Christ's return and being with him. Right? So be still, my soul. The hour is hastening on. When? We shall be forever with the Lord. When disappointment, grief, and fear are gone, sorrow forgot, love's purest joys restored. Be still, my soul, when change and tears are past, all safe and blessed, we shall meet at last. African-American hymnody, much of which was written during uh, the period of slavery in America, especially focused on Christ's return precisely because slaves had nothing to look forward to in this life. And so their hymns rang of, of crossing over Jordan, of a land that is fairer than day, of hark, I hear the harps eternal, and I'm going to ride the chariot in the morning Lord. So hardship and loss have a way of turning our attention toward heaven. One author has written this, I think, an accurate indictment of really contemporary Christianity as we, as we, think about, as we just we think about hymnody. Right? He says this, Life is too comfortable and things too important for us to want to leave this world, making it hard to sing with integrity On Jordan's stormy banks I stand and cast a wishful eye to Canaan's fair and happy land where my possessions lie. He says the modern Western church simply has too much here to sing words like these today. But then we encounter the death of a loved one, a family member, a friend, someone close to us. And death has a way of, of turning our attention toward things that are eternal and turning them off of things that are temporary. And in moments like that, it's where we need to have the reminder of these truths that we don't grieve as those who have no hope, but we eagerly await for the return of the Lord. And so the first thing we saw in this passage is that believers have hope in the face of death that changes the nature of their grief. But then secondly, we moved on to see this, that, believers, that the believer's hope is anchored in the work of Christ and the word of Christ. Okay, so we, we talked last week about how this idea of hope is not a mere wish or, or, or sort of blind hope, but rather we, we use this word to describe hope, that it's a confident expectation, and this it's not, it's not a, a baseless hope where there's no reason to have confidence, but rather it's because something else is true it's because of, of some other factor we can have, we can have this confident expectation I've tried to think of an illustration that like demonstrates this well, but I, I really couldn't come up with one. so the only thing I could think of one was it, it just it doesn't match, but I think it, it illustrates the point, right We know that the uh, in the in the early two thousands and maybe in the last ten years or so, the the Tigers experienced some success in uh, in, in baseball, and uh, there were periods of time where the Tigers uh, would had a really good starting pitching uh, staff, and they would they would succeed quite well. But then they would uh, they would get to this point where the starters ran out, and then they had to turn to the bullpen and it was not a pretty picture. Now, it was so bad that my wife, who does not follow baseball at all, we were driving down Sashaba Road, and on the sign for Taco Bell, it says, hiring closers. And my wife says, so are the Tigers. <laughs> and for her to, to understand a baseball joke like that, is, 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 <laughs> that that's just, just shows you how legendary the Tigers bullpen was or, or was not. But you remember the, the one year, though, where they had this pitcher by the name of Joel Zemiah, who was throwing a, a north of 100 miles per hour. And it was in, in, that, in, in that small window when he experienced all kinds of success, when the starters went out, there was legit hope because Joel Zemiah was in the bullpen, right? He, he had a, a phenomenal year. I think it was 05 or 06. And there was so much excitement when he would come into a game because everybody, everybody loved watching a pitch, and his, his success was, uh, was so great. Okay, it's that idea, like, typical for Tiger fans was that when the starters finished, okay, there's no hope. And if there's no hope, there's really, or if there is hope, there's no grounds for that hope. But in that one era, there was grounds for hope. Like, we have hope because this reality exists. In our bullpen, we have Jules and Maya, right? So this, this I say is not a good illustration of this, but it's, this is the principle, right? Because of some other factor being true, we can have a a confident expectation in in the face of death, okay? Now, the question we wanted to ask was, what are those other factors that are true that allow our hope to be described in terms of a confident expectation? Well, we noticed two of them in these passages. In fact, we only made it to one, and we're going to pick up with the second one this week. The, The first, we said in this passage, the believer's hope is anchored in the work of Christ. In other words, his death and resurrection. So look at verse 14 again. It says, For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. Okay, So it's the death of Christ that has atoned for our sins, that makes our forgiveness possible, and it's the resurrection of Christ that guarantees that... that that he will return for his children, right? We described it in 1 Corinthians verse 15 that it says Jesus Christ's resurrection was the first fruit of more resurrection to come for those who have placed their faith in him. And so our hope is first grounded in the work of Christ, right? There's an interesting two words in verse 14. He says, for since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, then he says this, even so through Jesus... God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. In other words, the, 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 the source of our hope or our hope is anchored to those words, those through Jesus, that it's only possible that through Jesus we can have hope in the face of death. Now, this is all so far, by the way, of review, but now we get into what we, what we uh, did not get to last week, and that was sort of the second portion of, uh, of our passage here. Uh, so last week we saw this, that our, our first our reality is anchored... Uh, to the hope of of the work of Christ. Our hope is anchored to the reality of the work of Christ. Now, secondly, this is where we want to pick up this morning, that our hope is anchored to the word of Christ. Okay, so it's first anchored to the work, but now we see that it is anchored to the word of Christ. We'll continue to pick up where we left off from last week. So notice verse 15. Notice the first part of verse 15, actually. He says, For this we declared to you, By a word from the Lord. Okay, so I know we've kind of broken this up into two weeks, but notice the flow. Right? So we don't want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, and that you sorrow as those who have no hope. And he says this, for, number one, if we believe that Christ died and rose again, then we have this hope. And number two, verse 15, for this we declare to you by a word from the Lord. Now the point verse 15 is making is that our hope is only as good as the one who has promised it. And That's, that's what we see here. Right? Have you ever been promised something by someone and you're thinking, well that's nice, but I just don't think you have the, the ability to see that promise carried through all the way to the end. Right? If you remember back to the nineteen 19- 88 presidential election, you'll remember this quote. Read my lips, no new taxes, okay? Well, however well-intentioned those words were by George Bush, the, the House and the Senate were actually controlled by the Democrats. I might get political here, but of course you know that means more taxes, right? Okay, so um, so so Bush you know, was pushing no new taxes, and finally came out with a deal in that era with uh, with the with the, the House and the Senate that they wouldn't add any new taxes, only that they would raise the current taxes. So when it came up for a second round for him to be elected, uh, one of the one of the critiques was that he didn't keep his words on that particular phrase, raise or, or mark my word or read my lips, no new taxes. Okay, it's like okay, that was well intended, but it's it's the reality of I, I don't think you have the ability to follow through on that promise. A, a promise is only as good as the one who is making it or as the one who is making it has the ability to see it through to the end. So here what Paul is emphasizing, this fact that, that our, our hope is, is, is given to us, and he, Paul says these words, by a word from the Lord. That it's the Lord who makes the promise that he's coming again to gather his saints to himself, therefore, this hope can be secure. And let me take you to a couple similar passages where it talks about the character of God being the grounds for us to believe in his promises, right? So, so go to two passages in, in Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 10 and then Hebrews chapter 6. Hebrews chapter 10, and pick up in verse 19. It says, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. And he says this in verse 23. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Now it's interesting in this passage in Hebrews 10 that, that our hope is grounded in these two realities again, the, the work of Christ and the word of Christ. Right, so the work of Christ, he's provided this new and living way through his flesh to allow us to have access to God. So it's through, his, it's through the work of Christ that we, we, have, we have hope in, 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 in salvation and in Jesus Christ and in eternity. But then in verse 23, he goes on to talk about the word of Christ. So, so let us hold fast to our confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. In other words, this is a, a sure hope because of the character of the one who has promised this. He is faithful, or he is reliable, or he is trustworthy. Now, turn back to Hebrews chapter 6, and we see this reality unpacked in a little bit more detail. Hebrews chapter 6 and verse, verses 13 to 20. For when God made a promise to Abraham... Since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his promise, he guaranteed it with an oath so that by two unchangeable things in which he says it is impossible for God to lie. We who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of our soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf. Okay, we don't have time to, to unpack this paragraph, but it's, it's what it's emphasizing here is the trustworthiness and faithfulness of God and his promises. So when God wanted to make a promise to Abraham, he, wanted, he to, to swear by it, He couldn't swear by anything higher than himself because he is the highest standard, so he swears by himself as he makes this, this, this covenant. And, and he goes on in this, the author of Hebrews goes on to say this in, in verse 18, says, referring to these things, in which it is impossible for God to lie. So since it is impossible for God to lie, that we know then that his promises are true, that his promises are, are certain. Okay, so now understand these realities in Hebrews in connection with 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. If God says that there will be a day when he returns for his children to meet them in the air and the dead in Christ will raise first, and that we will forever be with the Lord for those who have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and his death and resurrection. Guess what? That promise is certain because the God who promised it is faithful. And the God who promised it cannot lie. And so our hope, in our hope, we cling to this reality. We cling to the word of God who has promised these things. So in the face of death, okay, we remember the promises of the Lord. And we remember the character of God who promised those things to us, who will not deceive, but who will be faithful to fulfill those promises. And it's that, brothers, that, that our hope is anchored to. Now, let's go back to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And there's a question in this passage, about this phrase, we declare to you by a word from the Lord. And the the question surrounds this reality. That nowhere in the New Testament, or in the the Gospels in particular, do we find a, a promise from the Lord, or a word from the Lord, describing the details that we have here in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, where where Christ will descend from heaven, uh, along with those in Christ who have passed, the dead in Christ will rise first, and then, uh, then we who are alive will be caught up to, to meet him and be together with the Lord forever. Uh, there's, no, there's, no, there's no teaching of Jesus recorded that, that says this. So the question is, what does Paul mean when he says, we declare to you by a word from the Lord? Okay, well, there's three options that... That, that commentators have, have given. Number one, option number one, is to see this as a, a summary of Jesus' teaching about his return. So while he doesn't talk about these particular details in the Gospels or in his teaching, that we have here a summary of, of maybe a passages like the Olivet Discourse of Matthew 24. But this seems unlikely because the details here in 1 Thessalonians, they don't seem to match hand-for-hand hand or hand-in-glove with the details of Matthew 24. So it seems like Jesus is talking about something different here than when he's talking about Matthew 24 for his return. The second option, and this is a possibility, is to see that this is a teaching of Jesus that was not recorded in the Gospels, but that was handed down by the tradition of the apostles. Okay, so I say this is a possibility because uh, at other times, the Apostle Paul quotes a teaching of Jesus that we don't find any, any other place in the Gospels. So, right, like Acts chapter 20, verse 35, where I, I think the phrase there is that, that Paul says, you know, we know how the Lord taught, and, and he quotes Jesus that it's better to give than it is to receive. But then we don't have anything in the Gospels that... That, that talks about that, that particular statement that Jesus made, so, but it, we, we understand that it may have been handed down through the tradition of the apostles, and the, so the apostle Paul, as he, as he shares that, was quoting Jesus, even though we don't have it uh, recorded in the Gospels. So that's a possibility. That's option number two. But option number three is to see this, this word from the Lord as being a teaching that Paul himself received uh, from the Lord specifically. Or that maybe it was given to him by prophetic word by Silas, who was with him, who is also described as a prophet in Acts chapter 15, verse 32. And I, I lean toward, toward this way because, um, and I'll, I'll explain, but I think what, what Paul has here is, is special revelation that's been given to him that, that is new for, for this particular era in the church age. Okay? So if this is the case, that what Paul's receiving here about how the dead in Christ will rise first and, and that we who are alive remain will be caught up in the clouds together with him and to be forever with the Lord, um, if that's the case, then I think what's being said here is, is, is new revelation for the Apostle Paul. And if that's the case, then I think it's, we see a parallel statement in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 Verses 51 to 58. Now, you have to turn there, but I'll read that for you. Where Paul says this that in the moment, and a twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will all be changed. Okay, Paul refers to similar ideas here, 1 Corinthians 15 and 1 Thessalonians 4. And I think most people agree that 1 Corinthians 15 and 1 Thessalonians 4 are talking about the same type of event or the same event when the dead in Christ rise and we receive our glorified bodies, okay? So I think what we have there is everybody agrees that 1 Corinthians 15 and 1 Thessalonians 4 are, are, the, same, uh, are the same event. But the interesting thing about 1 Corinthians 15, when Paul articulates these details of the rapture, is he says this, he says, what I tell you is, and he uses this word, a mystery, Okay? He describes the, the events of the rapture as, as a mystery. So a mystery is something that was not revealed in the Old Testament or hasn't been previously revealed, that now is, is new and is being freshly revealed in the, in the words here of the Apostle Paul. So it's my understanding that, that these two phrases in First Corinthians 15, a mystery, and in 1 Thessalonians 4, a word from the Lord, is new revelation that the, that the Lord has given the Apostle Paul concerning the rapture of the church, right? Because certainly the scriptures talk about Christ's second coming, okay? And they say, have lots to say, even in the Old Testament, about Christ's second coming. But what we have that's new or that's a mystery that's now being revealed as a word from the Lord, I think, is, is that this, these details of the rapture are new. I think Jesus hints uh, to the details of the rapture in, in John chapter 14, where, where Jesus says, I'm going to heaven to prepare a place for you. I'm going to return, receive you unto myself, that where I am there you may be also. I think the implication there is that, that Jesus comes, he, he raptures his his church, and then they, they go to they go back to heaven with Christ for the duration of, of what would be the great tribulation, for the marriage supper of the Lamb, and for the Bema seat Judgment, before then they return, Jesus returned, in the second coming for... To, uh, to establish his kingdom, now we 'll get into these details in a, in a couple of weeks, but, but for now, I just want to just kind of to, to, to show us that this phrase that he gives here as a word from the Lord, while we don't have it recorded in the scripture, seems to me likely to be that this is new revelation given by the apostle Paul. As I said, we 'll pick up some of this in, in two weeks, but for now, I think what Paul's saying here is likely new. that's information that's being communicated to him from the Lord. Now, here are the details of the revelation. The Lord himself will descend from heaven. That's that's an amazing picture, right? Because where is the Lord now? He is seated at the right hand of his Father. And at the appointed time, and I can almost just, I shouldn't do this, but I can picture how it's going to happen. You just see Jesus starting to, to stand up from the right hand of the throne of his Father. And it's that, that making that, that move, like the, the appointed time, Jesus will arise from where he is seated at the right hand of the throne of God and begin his descent to gather his people. And that is an amazing picture of what is taking place there. He'll bring with him those who have fallen asleep, he'll arrive in the clouds. The dead in Christ will, will rise first, receiving the glorified bodies. And then we who are alive and remain will go to meet the Lord in the clouds where we will always be with him. This is, this is a blessed truth. I don't even think we can, our minds can comprehend in this, in, this, in this day. So the question is, how do we know that this will happen? Well, it is anchored in the work of Christ and the word of Christ. It's made possible through his death and resurrection and it's assured to us in that he has promised it to us. Okay, so here's what we've seen so far. Believers have hope in the face of death which changes the nature of their grief. This hope is anchored in the work and word of Christ. Now lastly, we see this in verse 18. This hope is to be a source of comfort for believers. This hope is to be a source of comfort for believers. Now, as I mentioned last week, that one of the sad realities about the study of end times is that they have been turned into books, movies, wild speculations about current events, prophecy conferences where much of what was discussed was speculation about things the Bible doesn't even speak. And that's a disappointing reality about the study of end times, right? It used to be the tradition of Baptist churches to gather on New Year's Eve and watch a thief in the night, right? That was, that was what you did if you were a Baptist, okay? And it's, it's those, those, kinds of, those kinds of things that actually, I think in my mind, become a distraction from what the Lord has intended in telling us His coming and the purpose for His coming, okay? This preoccupation with end times events, is not consistent with the purpose for which God revealed it. Like, Paul doesn't say, here's what's going to happen. Now, go make a series of novels on the Lord's return. No, he says, in verse 18, comfort one another with these words. Okay, when fellow believers lose a loved one, it is this message... That brings hope and encouragement to hurting hearts. Right? I find it interesting that, that Paul doesn't simply say that this message brings encouragement or that this message is encouraging or, or brings comfort. But notice what he says it's actually a command comfort one another with these words. In other words, we have the responsibility to our brothers and sisters of Christ to take these words and to remind them, uh, remind our brothers and sisters who are, who are facing loss, to remind them of the hope that we have in Christ. So it's not just that this message is, is a comfort, but that this message is to be the means of our comfort, that we're to actively encourage and comfort one another by reminding each other of the hope that we have. That this hope is to be used to, to minister to hurting souls, like medicine to a wound are these words to a comfort to, of a comfort to a hurting soul now, if I can give a, just a practical application along these lines, it is easy to run to someone in their time of, of need or in their time of loss and to to minister words of hope like this. But you know what happens frequently as the as the days pass, as the weeks pass, as the months pass, this person still grieves the loss of their loved one. But we so easily and quickly move on because we're busy and we have things in life that preoccupy our our attention. And we forget to continue to, to bring back the hope of the resurrection, the hope of Christ to that person who continues to experience their loss. Maybe you're here and you have experienced loss re- recently and you recognize this as a reality that it's people are quick in the moment to offer comfort but then as time goes on people forget your pain and probably you were guilty of the, of, of the same thing at times with, with others who have experienced their loss. So if I can call us back to this this reminder that that each one of us has the ministry of bringing comfort to one another in the face of loss. And the source of our comfort is is this message, that Christ is going to return and he, we will forever be with him. Now, as I think about this passage, I have I have mixed emotions about preaching it. Because on the one hand... It is a joy to preach such a comforting message, and, and many of us here have received comfort from this particular passage. But on the other hand, this is a tough passage because I know that it's preparing us for pain that is yet to come. Right? You might not be in a situation right now where you're experiencing loss, or, or maybe you've been in a situ- you haven't been in a situation in life where you have experienced much loss. And yet, what this passage is, is doing is it's, it's, it's attempting to shape your heart and mind now so that when that time does come, you're ready for it. But it's like, I, don't, I mean, I want to have my heart shaped by this, but I don't know if I really want to go through the pain that, that, that's coming in, in loss. right? But if we live long enough, loss is, is, is going to be part of, part of our life. It's only a matter of time before the Lord brings some sort of situation in your life where someone with whom you're close passes. And you have to, you have to come back to this reality that our hope rests in, in Christ and in His work and his, his word. And so it's a, it's a, it's a tough reality because we, we need this lesson. As much as we don't want to learn it or encounter a season where we have to learn it, we, we need it. And so I think the encouragement, as we started with last week, is to remember this fact that we need to learn this lesson now so that when we do encounter situations of loss, that our hearts are already inclined to hope in the Lord and his finished work in our behalf. It's a difficult lesson to learn if we try to learn it later. So let us, let our hearts be gripped by these truths now while we have time. So let's be convinced That we have a hope in Christ's return. That hope is anchored to his work and his word. And let this message serve as a comfort for God's people. Let's pray together. Father, it's with joy and confidence that we study these words. Joy knowing that one day everything is going to be beautiful and perfect, not affected by the, the fall and the stain of sin, but we will be with you, and sin will be eradicated, and we will know true joy and bliss that you intended when you created the Garden of Eden. Our hearts long for that day. But in between now and then, there is much pain. There is much loss. And if you don't return soon, there's going to continue to be pain and there's gonna be continue to be loss. So what we need, as we remain, is to have our, our eyes and our hope fixed on you. So that no trial in this world can shake our confidence cause us to falter but Lord that we would have an assurance and conviction and sure hope that what your word says is true and that Jesus Christ has provided everything necessary for us for this hope to be secured so help us Lord to long for your return and may these words comfort us in our time of loss. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.